because I totally agree with Kate. I think the biggest challenge is in misinformation that is just rife out there in the uh, in the world. Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Bivey, Editorial Director for Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe and Biopharmaceutical International. We're here today to discuss perceptions and potential misunderstandings about all things mRNA. From a manufacturing perspective, what major obstacles persist and what can be optimised? And beyond infectious diseases, where the most excitement in R&D activity is currently focused, such as the new technologies by combining with CRISPR gene editing or for the more established combining with the targeted expression of monoclonal antibodies, for instance. This episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast is sponsored by Lonza. Lonza is an industry-leading integrated contract development and manufacturing organisation from drug substances to finished drug products. Thank you very much for making the time today to speak about a very important and increasingly important topic, which is mRNA coming out from obscurity, really, from a few years ago. We're very lucky to have two genuine experts in the field, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Kate. Thanks so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here today and to join Tom in this exciting discussion. My name's Kate Broderick. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at Maravai Life Sciences. We are a San Diego-based technology provider for developers in the field of nucleic acids. And perhaps the thing that we are most associated with is the CleanCap technology, which was, of course, a component of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Prior to joining Maravai, I've spent really my entire career as a nucleic acid drug developer. And so it's really exciting to be here today and to talk about this incredible technology and the power that it holds. Thank you. Uh, Tom? Good day to you both. Uh, great to meet you, Kate. Uh, looking forward to your, uh, your, your comments and your thoughts. Like yourself, uh, I'm from the UK originally, I came out to do a postdoc at the University of British Columbia, imagining I'd be there for a couple of years and never quite made it back. My background is in academia. I worked in research at the University of British Columbia, held a position there for a number of years. And the work we were doing had direct relevance to clinical applications and so moved into biotechnology and have spent almost all of my uh, working life in development of delivery systems for a variety of, of new types of therapeutics. And I think mRNA is now the most exciting uh, opportunity to truly make a, a significant advances in human health. I'm the president and CEO of Acuitas Therapeutics, 
which partnered with BioNTech and Pfizer to provide our delivery technology to them for the COVID-19 vaccine. And our team was incredibly proud of the um, accomplishments from that collaboration and for their uh, opportunity to contribute to a, a solution to the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And so, again, delighted to be here and, and looking forward to the conversation. So it's very interesting to see a platform go from arguably a four-letter word on the investment side of things to a household name. So I'm going to ask, is the question mark in the science community sort of totally removed from mRNA as, as, a, as, a, as a working therapeutic platform? And, and Kate, I'll, I'll go to you first. I do think it is worth kind of reminding ourselves that the general public didn't know anything about um, RNA as as a molecule until 2020, and now it's used routinely in your daily lexicon. And I do think that's quite an astounding thing that occurred during the last few years. From the perspective of a of a scientific background, has the platform been proven out? I, I would say absolutely. I think none of us could have hoped to have seen the efficacy that we saw during COVID um, with, with the vaccines. It was it was startling. It was like a, a poster child for everything you want in an infectious disease vaccine. But I will hasten to mention, Chris, that that is not carried through to the general public. And that is, mm. I think, whilst everybody embraced it during a global pandemic, I think there are really worrying signs now that the public are kind of starting to drift away from from the, the, the power of the science. And that is a real concern for me. I will point out that Albert Buhler talked just a couple of days ago in an interview about how many North Americans would get the COVID vaccine along with their flu vaccine. And he estimated 50% of Americans would get a flu vaccine, which surprised me, and then estimated anywhere between 5 and 25% would then continue on to get the COVID vaccine. So the, the question really, though, is the scientific community, and I'll, I'll tease it apart a little more, there's vaccines and then there's mRNA for other applications, but stick with vaccines just to begin with, because the the n number, the number of people who took the vaccine, it's a very large experiment. It's a very lot. Of, there's a lot of data available. So, in terms of, do I think it's a proven platform? Uh, absolutely, and I think one of the things we need to remember is mRNA is a natural molecule. I mean, you know, uh, each of our cells is translating tens of thousands of copies of mRNA uh, every minute. So, it's not as if We've come up with uh, a new entity that we're then introducing to people. This is this is something that their bodies recognise and 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 they're they, they're used to dealing with. I do agree that there's a continuing need to educate the public, to educate uh, regulatory officials, and 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 so certainly you know governments uh, who have uh, you know the uh, you know power over decision making you know relating to new vaccines or therapeutics to ensure that the the science message continues to be heard, because I totally agree with Case. I think the biggest challenge is in misinformation that is just rife out there in the in the world. Do either of you have a way of somewhat reliably addressing the public misconception or, or the politicization, unfortunately, of, of, of this field? 
the way I think of mRNA vaccines is that they're a much more elegant way in which we can train our immune system to, to be able to combat a potential infectious agent. In the past, we've simply taken attenuated virus, the whole attenuated virus or killed virus, injected that into our bodies and then relied on the protective effect from that. And, you know, viruses contain all sorts of proteins and, and DNA or RNA. And it, I, I would consider that mRNA vaccines are a simpler more elegant and, and arguably safer alternative to conventional vaccines. And conventional vaccines have, have demonstrated decades of safety. So I think, uh, you know, concerns over the new technology are, are truly overblown. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And look at the birth control issue, however, you know, settled science is still discussed in the public forum, because I guess there aren't enough strong voices able to sort of overwhelm that. Kate, you were sort of nodding. Uh, did you want to add? To... Yeah, I, I I think Tom's explanation is, is just spot on there. But I, I think as you reflect back, Operation Warp Speed, you know, they, I mean, what they achieved was absolutely phenomenal, incredible work. But I think when you listen to General Gus Perna kind of doing a retroactive, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? the number one thing that they said they wish they'd done better was the communication part of it. And, you know, I of course, we all had so many things going on during the pandemic. But, you know, reflecting back, perhaps that was a miss for us as the scientific community to go out there and really talk through exactly what Tom said is this is a natural molecule that, you, you know, this is this isn't some you know, something that's completely foreign to the body. But but I do think that we as the scientific community need to own that. Uh, and Chris, maybe now's a good time to say that organisations like the Alliance for mRNA Medicine, so AMM, which is an advocacy group, which has a lot of purposes really in, in both in the scientific community, but also for the general public. We need to say, what can we do to make the public comfortable with RNA-based medicines, because this truly could change the face of um, healthcare. But if nobody, or if only a small portion of the population are willing to take it, then the impact is is really for nothing. And and so I do think that that is something that perhaps at a government level um, we should be taking extremely seriously. Thank you for pointing that out, that, that they are. I think it's just that it's such a new thing and there were such louder voices to contend with at the time. We live in a social media world and there was just such a lot of conversation going on. But I, I do think a group like AMM is necessary. And so, Tom, I'll, I'll put it back to you on the science side. There are You talked talk about mRNA as a natural molecule, but we did tweak it. N1-methylcetouridine, for example, is a modification to it, which is a natural modification. But that is where some of the contending voices come in. They, they point to something like that as if it's a problem or a potential problem. Is there a way to sort of explain to say, let's say a, a, an astrophysicist or someone who doesn't know biology, why you have such a good comfort level with this platform? Uh, as you say, even the, the modified nucleotides are modified nucleotides that are found in, in nature. I think you could also point to that there are examples of vaccines generated with modified and unmodified mm. uh, mRNA constructs. And in fact, 
the, the safety profile is probably even more favorable for the modified uh, nucleotide uh, construct. So I think there is certainly um, a strong scientific uh, basis for it. I think, you know, when we're talking about disinformation, though, you know, sadly, the science is often trumped by, uh, by fear. And, uh, you know, I, I echo, you know, your and Kate's comments that having a, a number of different companies trying to get out the message as to the safety and effectiveness of these types of therapeutics that that is far better achieved by by an umbrella organization, a coalition like AMM, which can hopefully speak, you know, with a single voice. But also, as I say, I think want to continue to educate um, uh, scientists and and regulators around the world. And again, I think that's a that's one of the directions that AMM is intending to take is to be a uh, an expert group or to bring together expert groups who can advise on specific topics, you know, relating to these new types of uh, therapeutics. So thank you. Looking back at the pandemic and communication was one of the things that came out from the regulators and came out from the big companies, you know, the bet they actually improved their ability to communicate and we're even talking to competitors. So switching gears from a manufacturing perspective, what sort of major obstacles or opportunities do you think you prioritize? And Tom, I'll start with you on this one. So I think, uh, obviously, one of the areas where we're using mRNA is in the development of personalized cancer vaccines, for example. I mean, it's at an early clinical stage of development. Uh, there's some encouraging clinical data, but there's a great deal more work that's needed. And so the challenge that provides is the exact opposite of the challenge we had with the COVID-19 vaccine, not how yeah. can we make kilogram or ton quantities of vaccine, but how can we make very small quantities of vaccine suitable for individual patients? And so that's one of the areas uh, where we're working and, and others are working is, is in trying to automate and miniaturize the manufacturing process so that we can, uh, and, and I'd, I'd invite Kate to speak about this on the, on the mRNA side, because you need to generate individual mRNA constructs that are patient specific, and then formulate those into an LMP so that they can be administered to, to that patient in a very short period of time. Obviously, if, if you're a cancer patient, you don't want to be waiting any longer than absolutely necessary to receive the vaccine. So that's certainly one area uh, of, of focus and, and, and of challenge that I know a lot of people are engaged in. The other area, obviously, is being able to disseminate the, the manufacture of vaccines in a wide number of countries. When one of the problems we had during the pandemic is manufacturing sites were based in a, a small number of locations. And I think we want to ensure that countries have more access and control over uh, vaccine supplies in the future. And so there's obviously a number of initiatives, again, looking uh, as, as far as possible to automate the manufacturing process so that it can be available for, for more local distribution. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I, Tom is, is so right. I think, you know, the, the future for oncology treatment, I mean, I, I truly hope that in, you know, five, 10 years, chemotherapy becomes something of a redundant treatment and that we're looking really at much more bespoke, tailored approaches to cancer. But to kind of emphasize Tom's point, there was a beautiful study that came out of 
a large group in the UK called the Tracer X study, where they actually monitored people's cancers over time and fairly frequently. Uh, and, you know, within the matter of a month, some of these tumours had completely changed their neoantigen profile. So to, to Tom's point, the, the need to have really unprecedented speed rapidity to, to make this the promise of personalised vaccines prominent, I think it is absolutely key now. And, um, you know, many people, of course, scaled up during the pandemic, which is, is a major, a major stride forward for the field. I think now keeping those manufacturing plants warm, I think that's it's going to be a, a, a challenge because, I, you know, let's fingers crossed that we don't have um, another global pandemic. I think issues that were really pertinent during the pandemic were, of course, supply chain. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the supply chain side, and certainly the US government's very keen on looking at modalities to do that. I mean, I think there are still a lot of elements that need to be tackled. I think another interesting one that might not occur is that during the pandemic, a major struggle for the manufacturers was having trained workforce. So ensuring in some ways that perhaps we partner with academic institutions so that we're actually training the next round of manufacturers with, with a potential need for future pandemic preparedness. So I think we need to kind of really think a little bit outside of the box about the experience we went through and what we can do to ensure that we have preparedness moving forward. Perfectly. A lot of pain points present opportunities for doing a better job next time around. And staff in particular was, uh, and that's an ongoing industry-wide issue. So on the science side, being positive that the, you know, you can have a regulatory pathway, a platform pathway, which would be kind of an interesting new approach. I'm actually also interested, however, in how you could marry an mRNA platform to another technique, let's say gene editing or something like that. So, Tom, have you got thoughts or have you been working <laughs> that you can talk about in the background on things like that? Uh, absolutely, yes. No, we're, we're working with a number of partners on a variety uh, of um, gene editing approaches. And I think, I mean, there there are two, you know, potential, you know, delivery options for gene editing. You know, one is viral, one is non-viral. And I think people are recognizing the advantages of the non-viral approach because you can redose patients. Um, it's not a one and done um, therapeutic. And so we are supporting a number of partners developing uh, a range of gene editing modalities. And what surprises me is 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 how that field is growing uh, and and how the technology around gene editing is improving to avoid cutting uh, using base editing, prime editing, and so on. Um, I think obviously, you know, there are important ethical discussions around how and where gene editing therapeutics should be applied. Those are uh, uh, going on, and again, possibly an area a uh, AMM should consider engaging in if you're not doing so already, because the the delivery aspect is is also critical there. But I think it's it's an area that has enormous potential. But we're also um, working with partners looking at a variety of epigenetic uh, approaches to to modulate gene expression. And so um, I think, uh, as I say, th this whole field 
uh, is extremely uh, vibrant at the moment. Um, there's a lot of uh, nascent science that is being that is moving towards the clinic. And I think it's going to be a very exciting time over the next several years, particularly as we get more clinical uh, data coming out, hopefully uh, confirming the, the earlier studies, you know, demonstrating the utility of, of gene editing uh, in, in particular applications. Yeah, I think that uh, you can draw a direct line between what you just said and the rise of CAS. Cas12a, I think, because it's small enough to be used in some of the viral vectors for for this application. So, there's a as you say, it's not possible to keep up with the reading with all of the uh, advances that's being made. Kate, yeah, I think Tom really eloquently covered the the editing profile, but um, you know, I think as we're looking at the massive strides forward that, for instance, Vertex is making towards the uh, potential first approved product. And that's really, um, you know, there in the future. But, you know, if I could play devil's advocate to that, if if the public are having concerns about um, RNA-based vaccines, you know, you could extrapolate that they may have equally large, if not more, concerns about things that could potentially edit their genome. You know, really just coming back to that need for education. But, you know, on top of really, you know, the the CRISPR um, editing applications, you know, think about the potential for RNA-based expression of monoclonal antibodies. I mean, that is an enormous market that could allow us to utilize the power of monoclonals in places where, for instance, due to, you know, just the environment, that would be impossible. And um, so think, you know, think through what the potential as a messenger this molecule could do, protein replacements, another obvious application, that the sky to some degree is the limit. But, you know, we, we do need to think about how we message this, pardon the pun, to those who would actually benefit from it. Well, actually, you just anticipated my next question, because that's where I was heading. Like what seems the most either scientifically interesting, just from an intellectual curiosity point of view, or from a reality based opportunity and an unmet need in the pharmaceutical market where you would where you triage your your priorities. So I'll ask that to Tom first, but you can feel free to chime in, Kate, because that was really where I was heading. Like beyond the vaccines, there's a there's a lot of interesting uses. However, you would then need to get ahead of the public education part, because what is the point if people aren't going to, as you said earlier, accept this as a modality? And then that's not even makes my head spin to think about reimbursement and things like that. So Tom, where would you head next if it were all left to you. So, so again, we generally work in sort of lockstep with our partners. So mm-hmm. we're looking at where their clinical uh, interest lies mm-hmm. and trying to ensure that we support that. And I agree with Kate. I think, you know, uh, recombinant, you know, monoclonal antibodies have been incredibly important clinically and, and commercially. They can be challenging and expensive to manufacture. And I think that the the idea of using a messenger RNA to simply encode it and have the patient generate the uh, the monoclonal antibody and glycosylate the monoclonal antibody themselves, I think is is very attractive. And and you know there are examples of of these therapeutics in clinical development at the at the moment. I I totally agree. I think uh, we need to get ahead uh, into uh, of the uh, of the public in terms of educating the public as to, as to the potential benefits of this. I think 
that, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a, an even bigger challenge when you're talking about um, gene editing or epigenetic uh, modulation. And I, I don't think it's too soon to give serious thought to how can we ensure that there's a recognition of the the clinical need. You know, what, what are the patient populations that truly uh, need these novel therapies that have no other options available to them? What are the the safety studies that that have been conducted and are being conducted to demonstrate that these therapies aren't going to change the uh, the germline. So, you know, th- that science is is going on, but I don't think there's any sort of conversation or, the, or there's very limited conversations happening um, with policymakers or regulators that, that, they, that they, they are occurring, but it hasn't risen to the level of the general public at this point. Now, I will say that Peter Marks from SIBA at FDA is, is willing to lead some of those conversations, but it, it takes more than a few voices. It, it takes a sort of a unified effort to really get ahead of something like that. So are there any misperceptions or myths about mRNA that we could debunk in a, in a quick way? So let me see if I can think of one off the top of my head. Oh, some of the adjuvants that were included in the vaccine were cardiac uh, issues. So I think that that was debunked, right? But uh, are there a couple of others that one of you, Kate, would like to mention? Well, Chris, yours is a perfect example. So it was debunked, but... Elon Musk was just tweeting or what you Xing it now or whatever you talk call it now. You know, just recently about the the young gentleman, the basketball player. Who, and so, you know, it wasn't a direct, it was caused by the COVID vaccine, but there was definitely a, but was it caused by the COVID? And that's a real problem. And, you know, I think, you know, yourself, Chris, Tom and I could speak for the rest of the day about the quite frankly ridiculous notions that were tied to RNA-based vaccines. But wherever there's a a grain of something, it's just being amplified and certainly isn't helping when we have people like Mr. Musk um, putting that out on social media. I think one of the things that that, uh, is is lost in the conversation is... even if if there were some cross reactivity between the, the the spike protein and and other components in the body, generally where we're seeing any safety signals from the vaccine, the same safety signals are far more prevalent in individuals infected by the virus, and and that's lost in the conversation. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. the 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 vaccine can't in any way uh, elicit to any extent, you know, any of the side effects that you see with the virus. I mean, I think that's just an unrealistic expectation. I confess I do lose track of that, you know, until you pointed that out. I hadn't thought of that for like a year. So, so winding up for time, it's been a delight to talk to you both. Kate, I'll start with you first. Would you like to emphasize anything in particular or just sort of conjecture about something that is of interest to you or that you think would be interesting to the, the typical lister? The future for mRNA-based um, or, or RNA-based therapeutics is so incredibly bright. I am at wonder at the potential of this platform and at the applications that we can have a meaningful benefit on. And I, and I am so positive from a scientific perspective that that will be a reality in, in a fairly short manner of of time but i 
come back again and sorry for being a broken record that I have major concerns about how we can do better at communicating the science in a meaningful way to the people who need to be convinced. Yeah, thank you. Good emphasis, because it's not the sort of thing a lot of us enjoy doing, trying to do the education program. Tom? Uh, I, I, I completely agree with uh, with Kate. I think the, the versatility uh, of the mRNA technology really lends itself to us uh, trying to address diseases which have historically eluded uh, a, a, a vaccine approach, malaria, HIV, tuberculosis, because we can express multiple different antigens, multiple variants of different antigens. As Kate mentioned earlier, we can rapidly uh, adjust the uh, the constructs that we use, the, the antigens that we express to meet individual geographical requirements. And I think you know, there's a huge potential there to, to, to really uh, truly advance human health. But it, uh, as we've uh, said before, the, I think the biggest challenge is misinformation, uh, misperception as to uh, what these vaccines uh, are and what they can do. And I, I agree, people have to be willing to stand up and, and speak the truth and, uh, you know, try, as I say, to be an advocate for this uh, truly remarkable technology. The great emphasis, thank you, Tom, to finish on, because FDA uh, grasped onto the reconfigurability of the platform in a big way already. So it's a delight, genuine delight to talk to you both. I, I really enjoyed it. Enjoy summer holidays if that's what you have planned, but I really do appreciate your time. A pleasure to meet you both. Thank you so Thanks. much, Chris. Thanks, Thanks Tom. N nice to meet you, Kate. Thank you. to our editors and experts for sharing their insights. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our e-newsletters. When you sign up for our newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars and hear about episodes of Drug Digest. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast.